Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22, beginning to read with the first verse. For some time now, we've been following the children of Israel in their journeys from the promised land, uh, from Egypt to the promised land, and we've seen how, due to the unbelief of the first generation there, they were required to wait until that generation died off. Some 40 years they were to wander in the wilderness, and uh, then they would be allowed to enter. Now, they are at this point in their wanderings, and as they move back toward the Promised Land, they encounter various hostile kingdoms, one, the Amorites, and God uh, gives them signal victories over these hostile kingdoms. We're speaking of several million, million people here, as far as the numbers of the Israelites are concerned. And they come and they camp uh, on the side of the Jordan River, across from Jericho. And the nations there, the Moabites and the Midianites, become very concerned. We just read of how the king of the Moabites, Balak, decides to enlist the aid of Balaam against Israel. His enlistment of Balaam's aid is the part of his plan as to how he can overcome this numerous force that's come against him. Uh, He says in uh, verse 6, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail. I know that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou curses is cursed. He wants him to come and in modern terminology, put a hex on them. And uh, this is his plan. He sends messengers <clears throat> from these two nations to Balaam uh, with this proposal. And he's very persuasive. Not only has he a plan, but he is ready to push it forward very persuasively. We read in the seventh verse, The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hands. They are prepared to pay for this privilege. And uh, we read in verse 12, God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And in verse 13, Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. But, as we mentioned, Balak is persuasive, and he he gives it a second effort. We read in verse 15, Balak sent yet more, yet again, princes more and more honorable than they. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor. I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, 
that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. God gives him permission to go. In verse 20, God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I say unto thee, that shalt thou do. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. Here's this enlistment of Balaam's aid against Israel. Then we come to the encounter of Balaam with the angel. And the the first thing that we encounter that somewhat surprises us is the anger of God at Balaam's going. In verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went. We wonder why. God gave him permission to go. Why should God be upset at Balaam going? Two reasons. Number one, Balaam's covetousness. He wanted to go. In his heart, he wanted to go. You pick this up as you read between the lines a little bit. For instance, in the 13th verse of that 22nd chapter, Balaam says, The Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Mm, I'd like to go, but the Lord won't let me. Leaves the door open somewhat. We see how it is with him. And in the New Testament... Balaam is referred to three times and is held up as a classic example of covetousness. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15, we read where Peter is discussing uh, false teachers, false prophets. He says, uh, they have a heart that they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children which have forsaken the right way, and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And again, uh, Jude speaks of those who ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward. We pick up what the problem is. He's covetous. Covetousness is the desire for gain which cannot be satisfied lawfully. God had said, don't go. And that settled it. But he wanted to go. He craved to be able to go and to get this gain for himself. The Tenth Commandment says, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor his wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, anything that is thy neighbor's. But he did. He wanted. He wanted those things that he couldn't get in a lawful way, within the will of God. Covetousness angered God, and compromise angered God. You say, well, how did he compromise? Didn't he just flat say, no, I can't do it? It doesn't matter if you were to give me a house full of silver. I can only do the will of the Lord. Even if his heart attitude was wrong, at least he didn't indulge it. At least he, he flat stood up against it. No, he didn't. He left the door open. He left a crack in the door. When he said, the Lord refuses to let me go, he was saying, "Mm, if you twist my arm, maybe I could go. And when they come back, 
and they twist his arm a little bit, and he says, No, uh-uh, I can't go, but I tell you what, stay here overnight and let me ask the Lord, and let's see what he'll say. Did he need to ask the Lord? Why ask the Lord? The Lord said what his will was already. He didn't need to ask, he needed to act. He needed to act resolutely, uncompromisingly on what God had revealed his will to be. Oh, I watch people struggle with this. You know, there's some hard things in the Word of God, aren't there? There's some hard things about Christians not marrying non-Christians. Oh, and I've watched young people struggle. They fall in love with a non-Christian, and then they want to pray about it. Well, let me pray and see if it wouldn't be the Lord's will. Uh Uh-uh. Don't you pray about it. You just cut it off, root it out, pluck it out, and deal ruthlessly with yourself about it. There's no sense in praying about it. You already know the Lord's will. And to pray about something that's clearly revealed in the Word of God as, can we get around this some way, is to indulge sin, it's to compromise, it's to insult God, and it's sin. He needed to act on the light that he had instead of asking for more light. Compare how Christ dealt with temptation when Peter suggested to him that he shouldn't really go up to Jerusalem and be killed. Jesus said, the Son of Man must go up and be crucified. And Peter said, not so, Lord, be it far from thee. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You notice how he dealt with it? No crack in the door. No dialogue. (laughs) Dialogue with the devil. Boy. He said, listen, I know the source of that. I spot it right away as a temptation to sin, and I'm slamming the door. No crack in the door. Get thee behind me, Satan. Ruthless encounter with temptation. No indulging for a second. That's the way to deal with it. But he compromised here. The Lord let him go. Why did the Lord give him permission? Because the Lord saw how determined he was to fulfill this inordinate desire, this unlawful desire. And you see, the Lord's not going to remove temptation, and he's not going to make a robot out of you. He'll let you go ahead and choose to do evil. But what he will do is what he did here. He sent an angel to obstruct the way. He sent some special providence to hedge the way up and to lead Balaam to make a choice not to do this folly. Notice where it says... It says that the angel of the Lord uh, is sent. In verse 22 again, The angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Who is this angel of the Lord? We've encountered him before in the Pentateuch. It's the Lord himself. This angel is no ordinary angel. As you read carefully, you find out that this is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. the Lord himself. And he goes and he stands in the way. Balaam is riding on an ass, we read. 
And the ass sees the angel and turns out of the path because the angel is standing there with drawn sword. Balaam beats his ass and turns him back into the way. Then the angel stands in a mountain pass where there's very little room on either side. Again, the ass sees him, and he turns aside, and in so doing, he crushes Balaam's foot against the stone. And again, Balaam beats the ass. A third time, the angel stands in front of the donkey. Only this time, there's no room in the pass to go to the left or to the right. And the donkey falls down. God doesn't force us to do right. He doesn't overrule the power of choice. But in mercy, he does send these various providential hindrances, these various obstructions to deter us when we head into sin. Maybe a businessman is beginning to do something wrong in his business, and all of a sudden he has a very serious setback in some way. That's God in mercy saying, uh-uh, choose differently. Some of you read the book Run, Baby, Run by Nikki Cruz. Nikki Cruz had been in uh, all type of sin and on drugs and so on, and, and he becomes converted. He becomes a Christian. One of his besetting sins had been in the area of sex, and uh, Nikki uh, falls in love with a Christian girl. They have an opportunity to be alone, and uh, uh, they uh, begin doing some petting, all in innocence up to this point. But uh, now they become involved, and their passions become heated, and he's about to indulge his old sin. There's a sudden burning sensation in his pants. He leaps up. He's been laying on an ant bed. And he goes screaming down the road, precisely. God hedging up the way and saying, "Uh uh-uh, Nicky, no, Nicky. I remember a young man here who began to just step into a wrong direction, and he got arrested in a pretty serious charge, taken into court. And he was let off with a very serious warning, but... He understood, and his parents understood, and I understood that was God saying, mm-mm, no. They got the message. But you know, sometimes folks don't get the message. <clears throat> sometimes we, like Balaam, are blind to God's hand in these things. And we react to the things. Balaam begins to beat his ass and to pound on the donkey. Now the most unusual providence of all occurs as the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. In verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me. I would that there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am I not thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine until this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Nay. 
Some have uh, questioned the <clears throat> credibility of this uh, story. It is a little unusual. Uh, but I believe an adequate reply to those who question the credibility is what the old Puritan said when he said, uh, Some wonder whether an ass can speak and by their action prove that it is possible. <clears throat> I'll rest with that answer. <clears throat> but it's not only the credibility of this that kind of comes up, it's the stupidity of it. Here Balaam is, and his donkey begins to speak back to him, and he is so mad that he doesn't even realize the unusual situation, and he carries on a conversation with the donkey. Instead of just uh, fainting dead away, he's arguing with the donkey about this whole matter. The utter stupidity of it and the tenacity of this uh, with which Balaam clings to his sin here, his covetousness. His eyes are then opened, it says in verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed his face and fell, his head, and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass three times? Behold, I went to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned aside, and so on. And verse 34, Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. But notice what he says. Now, therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. If, if it displeased, he knew it was displeasing to the Lord. He should have turned and run up the road in the opposite direction. But he still wants to go on. And the Lord lets him. He says, all right. Verse 35, the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that shalt thou speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And we hit the very interesting endeavor of Balaam to curse Israel. The first effort, he's taken to a high place where he can overlook all of this multitude. And uh, Balak says, now cursed him. And so due preparation is made in verse 1 of 23. Build me here seven altars, prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And then the word comes to him from the Lord. In verse 5, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return unto Balak and thus shalt thou speak. And the parable that he speaks is given uh, to us, starting with verse 7. He took up this parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or the number of the fourth part of Israel? 
Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. What is he saying here? Well, he's speaking of the ineffectiveness of humans against God. He says, how can I curse him if God doesn't curse him? And again, he speaks of the separateness of Israel. He said, this nation is a distinct nation. This people is different. They belong to the Lord. They're separated unto him, like you and I are supposed to be if we're Christians. Separate unto the Lord. Come ye apart and be ye separate. In the world, but not of the world, not conformed to the world, transformed through the renewing of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, living in this world, but different, a different set of values, separated unto the Lord. Again, the uh, blessedness of the righteous in their death. Let my end be like his. Let me die the death of the righteous. Balaam said, oh, that I had the relationship to God. I want that relationship to God, that those who truly believe among this nation have. They are righteous. They have a right legal standing with God. And their death is a blessing. They go to be with him. This is the parable. You can imagine the prostration of Balak. In the 11th verse, Balak says, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. So then there's a second effort. And uh, in verse 13, Balak said, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place. And let's do this again. And he brings him to a different place. And again, the parable is taken up, the word that God puts in Balak's mouth. In verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, and neither the Son of Man, that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? We see here the unchangingness of God. No need to try again. God's not going to change his mind. And God is immutable, unchanging. And he can carry through, and he will carry through what he says, says Balak. Uh, this is the word that God puts in his mouth. Again, in verse 22, he says, God brought them out of Egypt. <clears throat> Excuse me. In verse uh, 21, the fantastic thing that's stated about Israel is their acceptableness with God. As he says, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. He says, look, God accepts this nation. They are his people. He doesn't behold iniquity in them. He doesn't see their sin. That's the kind of standing that they have with him. Now, how did they have that standing? They had it through the Lamb. You remember, they were taught when they sinned to come to God and to bring a lamb, and the priest would confess their sin over the head of the Lamb. The Lamb's blood was symbolically presented to God, and they were told that they were forgiven. They were cleansed. God had put their sins behind him. Their iniquity he would remember no more forever. That's what the New Testament calls justification. 
The lamb represented a lamb-like person, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come and their sin and our sin would be put on his head and his blood would be shed. And on the basis of his death, God would forgive sinners, both in that Old Testament period and now, upon the condition of repentance and faith in the Lamb, faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. That when a person put their trust in Christ, their sinful record was put to Christ's account. His perfect record was put to their account. And God would say, I see no sin in him. His standing with me is accepted, justified, not guilty. God does not behold perverseness in you or in me from a legal standpoint once we've committed our lives to him through Jesus Christ. Again, the not only the uh, unchangingness of God and the acceptableness of his people there, but the ineffectiveness of opposition against his people. In verse 22, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn, this people do. Surely there is no enchantment against Israel, neither is there any divination against Israel, against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. And according... <clears throat> To this time it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What hath God wrought? In other words, they are absolutely invincible. God is their protector. He has built a shield around them. Not only does he accept them, but he protects them. Uh, God himself uh, will give them the strength of a unicorn. Uh, there is no power in this world, no enchantment, no divination, that can harm the people of God when God protects them. Fantastic statement. Of course, again, Balak is absolutely consternated, and he says, just be quiet. He says, don't say anything good or anything bad. Finally, one more effort is made, and a similar result comes up. And then, unwillingly, the Spirit of God comes upon Balak, and he makes a final statement about this people. And we find this final statement <clears throat> over in the 24th chapter in the 17th verse. He says, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. This star that would rise, this king, the scepter that would come, probably referred to David, who would come and be such a mighty king shortly. But ultimately it was fulfilled in David's great son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born years later from the land of David, who is the bright and morning star and who would destroy, not physical enemies, but spiritual enemies. He would destroy death and sin and hell for his people. Tremendous prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that terrific? Here the people of God are. Here are their enemies trying their best to do something to hurt them, and there's nothing that can be done. They have this perfect standing with God. They have his absolute protection. God doesn't change. 
No way to get at them. No way to get at them. That speaks of you and of me, of our situation, if we're true Christians. But you know what? You know what? He did get at them. They were cursed. He enticed them to curse themselves. Isn't that sad? Look at the 25th chapter in the first verse. And Israel bowed in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Israel committed fornication with the daughters of Midian. They involved themselves in the idolatrous worship of their gods. Why did they do this? When we put together various other scripture, we find out in the 31st chapter of Numbers and the 15th and 16th verses, we find that this was counsel that Balaam gave to Balak. In chapter 31 and in verse uh, 15, Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive, speaking of the women of Midian? Behold, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespasses against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And again, we read over in Revelation 2.14, Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, uh, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. He gave counsel. And he gave counsel to two sides. He gave counsel to Balak, their enemy, send your women down and let them seduce them and involve them in the worship of your gods. And then he went and he gave counsel apparently to Israel. And you pick this up in the opening part of Jude. Uh, where uh, we're told that uh, in the discussion of Balaam there that he was one of those false teachers who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. He went and he told Israel, he said, Look, you're, you're right with God, aren't you? And you're in a relationship with him, a covenant relation, and he's committed himself to watch over you and bless you. Why don't you go on and live it up a little? Why don't you go on and indulge in sin a little bit? You got it made. After all, once saved, always saved. Now go on, live it up a little. That was the counsel that he gave to Israel. And it was very effective. And God then had to punish his people. He who had been their advocate had to come become their adversary. He who had been their protector had to become their punisher. We read where God sends a plague, 23,000 die. He has the leaders killed. And one man in the congregation stands up and does a noble thing. When all of this is going on, there's a very prominent case of a leader in Israel bringing one of these Midianite women into the congregation, into his tent, and the son of the high priest, Phinehas, takes a spear and goes and kills them both. And God stops the plague. He says, because Phinehas was zealous for my honor, righteous indignation, restraining evil, 
among the people of God, I will stop the plague. Brethren, these things are solemn. This cancer of covetousness that infects so many. Uh, it's ruinous. What about you? Are you Mr. Facing Both Ways? Are you trying to serve God and mammon at the same time? Serve two masters? No man can serve two masters, said Jesus. You cannot do it. And if you're compromising, if you are infected and are indulging this cancer of covetousness or any other sin, and you're kidding yourself that you're a Christian, oh, you're on dangerous ground. He wanted to die the death of the righteous, but he wasn't willing to live the life of the righteous. He wasn't willing to let the, the Lord be in control of his life, control the things that he sought after as his goals. He wasn't willing to be fully committed. And you know when he died? He died with the enemies of the Lord. He died in the invasion of the Midianite nation. He that says that he knows him, he that says that he knows Jesus Christ and keeps not his commandments, is a liar. He's not a carnal Christian, he's a liar. If your life is characterized by the things that characterized his life, you may have had a lot of dealings with God, you may know a lot about God, but you're going to die the death of the wicked and go to hell unless you are really committed and he controls your life. You must surrender to a master. He's not a half-master, he's all-master or he's no-master. You must surrender the control of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, the cancer of covetousness. Uh, the cure for covetousness we pick up in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus for lunch. And after that luncheon, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I restore unto him fourfold. What's happened, Zacchaeus? Christ came to my house. Listen, when Christ comes into your heart, he drives out the money changers, like when he went into the temple, he drove out the money changers. When he comes into your body and it becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, he changes you. That's the cure for covetousness. Invite Jesus Christ in as Lord. Let him have full sway in your life. Trust him as your forgiveness of sin, his great sacrifice, as your acceptance with God. And he'll begin to cure you. Gradually but very really, he'll break the back of the disease, just like he did in Zacchaeus in a moment of time. But then there'll be the gradual help as you more and more are delivered from this. The concern of the Christian, listen, we don't need to be afraid of our enemies. We can laugh at them. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. There is no divination against you or me if we're true Christians. Nothing can touch me. Devils, enemies, humans, supernatural, we don't need to be afraid. Except of one thing, we need to be afraid of sin in our lives. We need to be afraid of compromise. 
like the plague. Recently talked to a president of a college, former missionary. He told me how last November a layman taught him the secret of walking daily controlled and cleansed by the Holy Spirit. That's the secret of walking with that protective shield. That's the secret of having these things continually removed from our life. Every day start off under the control of Christ. Every day when we slip in sin, immediately confess it and deal with it. Brethren, where are you? You've been kidding yourself? There are many here today who know that there are things wrong in your life, and like Balaam, you're not going to turn loose. You know it's not the Lord's will, but you want it. And it's utter folly. Utter folly. And God sent obstructions to tell you, and you've been too blind to sin. But he's opened your eye today. Deal with it. Turn and run back. Surrender that thing. Be ruthless with yourself about it. Right now, Christian, do that. And there are others here who know that they're not really Christians. They have never really taken the Lord as master of their life. Maybe he's been speaking to your heart about that. And you really want to do that. Do it right now. Let's bow in prayer. If you are a Christian and there's something wrong in your life, Like Balaam, you've been hanging on to it right now. Tell the Lord, Lord Jesus, I give this thing up. Give me the strength now to deal with it, to put it out of my life as I look to you to drive out the money changers. And if you're not a Christian and you know it, but you really want to be one, you mean business, you pray in your heart right now this prayer. Lord, I acknowledge my need of you. I know I cannot change my own life. I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for me. I invite you to come in as my sovereign master, and I trust you as my alone Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.